This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopeia.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world slash donate, or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Thea Riofrancos. One of the most valiant things or aspects of past struggles for more equality, for, you know, feminist struggles, civil rights struggles, labor struggles, like the struggles that predated us, is that their participants wouldn't always be around to see the hopefully better world that their endeavors help to create, right? I think that's such a kind of valiant expression of, in a way, solidarity across generations. Thea Riofrancos is an assistant professor of political science at Providence College. Her research focuses on resource extraction, renewable energy, climate change, green technology, social movements, and the left in Latin America. She is the author of Resource Radicals, From Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador, and the co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. She is a member of the Democratic Socialist of America and serves on the steering committee of their eco-socialist working group. Well, Thea, thank you so much for joining us on For the Wild podcast today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Mm-hmm. Well, before we delve into the thicket of resource extraction and renewable energy, I'd like to ask you about the importance of understanding energy as a concept that is deeply connected to production and why we must ground our understanding there before we can begin to even think about energy democracy or energy as a right. So that's a great question. We currently live under a regime of what we might call fossil capitalism, and I'm drawing on lots of other scholars and activists that have used that term. And at the center of that are the two parts of that phrase, right? On the one hand is energy that, is, that comes from hydrocarbons or, or fossil fuels, coal, gas, and oil. And on the other is capitalism, a system that is based on profit and private property and um, competition, right? Uh, among other things, the exploitation of labor, of course. And those two pieces have colluded, we might say, to create um, what is the climate crisis that we're living through today. So that climate crisis is simultaneously about the um, underlying energy system and the sources that it draws on to power everything that we do, right? Transit, um, turning on the light, uh, heavy industry, our housing, everything kind of is powered by uh, uh, an energy system rooted in fossil fuels. And then in addition, that whole system is structured by these imperatives that generate the forms of social inequality, economic inequality, are of course intersected with race and gender inequality, uh, the exploitation of labor, but also we're seeing especially clearly in this COVID moment, the deep precarity and insecurity um, of working people around the world. And I think we can start to get the sense of how those two pieces intersect with one another through a long history that's itself kind of rooted 
in colonial relationships, not only between different places on earth, um, but also perhaps we could say more deeply in a sense between humans and nature, um, between some groups of humans over other groups of humans and between humans and nature, right? And so this is kind of the complex. It's an energy system, but it's also an economic system. It's also a social system. It's also just the everyday life that, that we all live. Um, and it's that that I think we need to critique and resist and um, transform ultimately. And the challenge of our current moment, and this is gonna, I think, circle back very hopefully nicely to your question, is that we have an energy transition that is in its early stages. It's more and less advanced in different places on earth and different communities on earth, meaning a transition away from fossil fuel-based energy to energy that doesn't produce emissions, right? To energy that is renewable, that's solar or wind, or in some cases, geothermal. And so we're in the midst of this global energy transition, which is meant to address uh, the, the crisis of emissions and, and global warming. But what I think we should think about and be concerned about as activists, as scholars, as environmentalists, um, you know, uh, multiple types of folks, I'm sure listening to this podcast, is the way that we can have a renewable energy transition without the deeper transformations that would dismantle and, and undo and erect something totally different than fossil capitalism. So I think, you know, to your question, we absolutely need to think about how energy is imbricated in our everyday lives and imbricated in the climate crisis. But I think we should also at the same time think about how our energy system is structured by uh, forces like capitalism, like racism, like patriarchy, and like colonial relations between countries, uh, so that we don't replicate those harms as we transition to a different system of energy. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for grounding us in that introduction. And you often reference the vast disconnect between utopian futures pushed by clean energy advocates and the reality of extractive frontiers and the supply chains that green energy necessitates. Now, in the United States, we're seeing electric vehicles being advertised as an accessible product of the near future, while we are shielded from the truth of what is required in order to make these products accessible, specifically the denial of indigenous sovereignty and the violent desecration of ecosystems globally. So I know this is you know, this is a very vast topic, so I invite you to focus on whatever part calls to you, but I wonder if you can share with listeners what a renewable energy transition actually looks like from the perspective of the so-called peripheries of extraction, you know, the mines, power plants, refineries, and ports. You know, what kind of supply chain has been constructed in order to further green energy? That's a great question. Um, I like the framing a lot. I want to start with where you began your question, which is these clean, so-called clean or green technologies that have been invented and developed and are being deployed precisely in order to transition us to a low carbon or renewable um, uh, energy system, right? The one that I focus on a lot in my work are um, electric vehicles and particularly the batteries that power those vehicles, the lithium batteries, which are, by the way, the same batteries that power you know, our laptops and cell phones, or, or they're quite similar, right? So we're already familiar with rechargeable batteries, but the car versions um, are much larger. And so I want to just focus in on this label of clean technology or green technology. Labels that I, you know, I, I, I certainly use myself the idea of green, green technologies, but I think clean is particularly misleading, right? It kind of gives the idea that these technologies are somehow just synthesized in a laboratory or printed with a 3D printer, right? Or like automatically produced in some fully automated factory. It, it, it kind of has a, an idea of a modernity totally divorced from nature, right? And, and from all of the kind of raw materials and natural inputs that go into making what we use. And so instead, what I try to do in my work in conversation with other scholars and, and activists is show the very earthly, material, uh, natural, 
origins of this technology. Um, and, and that's to draw a broader point, which is to say these technologies are produced currently in the same way that any other commodity under capitalism is produced. Raw materials are wrested from the earth. They are extracted. Um, if they're agricultural materials, they are harvested, right? They are refined and processed, often using toxic chemicals and through polluting processes themselves. They are shipped to other parts of the world often to be further refined and then to be manufactured. We could look at that manufacturing and look at the exploitation of labor, look at you know, whether that itself produces also emissions and other environmental impacts, what are the safety conditions, right? And then at the end of that process of manufacturing and that long chain of relationships and different geographic sites, those technologies head to places of mass consumption. Um, and what I think this kind of shows us is that if we ignore, if we just think of the clean technology and the green or the green tech at the end of this whole chain of events, then we really miss out on a lot of where the environmental and social injustices might occur, right? And so I just advocate in general that we take um, what, what some call a kind of planetary perspective, meaning a perspective that can apprehend this spatially dispersed process that happens in all different parts of the world, from Chile to Indonesia, from the Philippines to China. And I'm just talking there about lithium ion batteries and only talking about a subset of the places that are involved, right? Um, and zoom in on what's actually happening in those places. And is that the kind of low carbon future that we want to build as let's say climate justice activists? Is that the kind of low carbon future that those workers and communities want to be a part of? Were they asked to be a part of it? Um, did they consent to the forms of extraction and exploitation that, that take place um, in their communities? And I think usually the answer is no, because of what I said earlier about the way capitalism functions. We aren't really asked. We don't have democratic um, participation that kind of governs the economy. And that is, I think, even more stark and apparent and dramatic in the places in the world that have been systematically and, and historically subject to uh, uh, forms of, of what we might call colonial or, or imperial relationships, right? And I'll just say a couple of more words to get more palpable and concrete. So what I learned uh, studying, just tracing the, the supply chains of, of lithium ion batteries is that um, the lithium that is extracted has pretty, um, I think, concerning environmental impacts in the immediate sites of extraction. I did my field work in Chile and uh, spent uh, several months there and I will be returning as soon as the pandemic allows me to. And I, I traveled around the country, both in the capital where a lot of important decisions are made, right? Policymakers and corporations. But I also went to the zones of extraction in the north of Chile in the Atacama Desert, which is a just beautiful landscape. It is also the home of indigenous communities that have lived there for thousands of years, well before the Spanish conquered uh, uh, Latin America or before the Chilean state existed. So you have indigenous communities, you have a beautiful landscape that they have developed all sorts of practices of cultural exchange and socio-natural kind of relation with that landscape. Then you have more recent, um, we could call them settlers, um, migrants, internal migrants. You also have tourists, right? So you have all sorts of people living in this, in this space. And what is concerning about the lithium extraction process, which is extracted from uh, these um, uh, underground brine deposits, uh, salty water deposits, in other words, from these beautiful expansive salt flats, it actually um, has the effect of making fresh water, uh, the water that humans rely on to for consumption and agriculture, um, and that of course is also water that, that spe other species rely on as well, that water is directly impacted by the rapid and rapacious extraction of brine. There's a whole complex water system that actually indigenous people know quite well, but scientists are just beginning to actually understand because um, it's such a complicated, unusual uh, water system that involves both brine and fresh water and is in the second driest place on earth after Antarctica. So you can just imagine the complexity, but also the vulnerability of this water system. 
lithium is being, um, uh, the, or I should say this brine is being extracted and then arrayed on these huge evaporation ponds in the desert so that the water evaporates into the air and you're left with a more concentrated lithium concentrate, which is then further refined elsewhere. Um, that whole process is very inexpensive for lithium companies because actually the sun does the sun and the wind do a lot of the evaporation work for them, which is free. Um, so it's another kind of gift of nature, but it's it's very concerning because it draws down the freshwater table at the same time, and this is compounded by two other processes impacting the region. One is climate change itself. So, you know, a bit ironic that this extractive frontier of technologies meant to combat climate change is also suffering severe consequences of, of drought um, and further desertification. And then um, on the other hand, copper, which is also extracted in this region and requires also a lot of water to be for processing in particular, and ironically, again, copper extremely um, needed for green technologies like EVs because of all of the electric wiring. So you have this place uh, on earth uh, that is a home to ecosystems and human communities that is being triply impacted in this way by climate change and by lithium and copper, uh, which all are, you know, again, the extractive frontiers of technologies that are actually needed to combat climate change. Though, and just to close out here, how we produce those technologies, um, who uses them, who controls their production and how much extraction they require. These are all political and social questions that we should think about because it's not preordained actually how much extraction is required uh, in order to produce technologies needed to combat climate change. Mm -hmm. Wow, just thank you for explaining all of that and connecting some of the dots that I think some of us are having an intuition about. I think many of us are starting to question what it actually takes to do this green energy <laughs> transition. And um, and it was really helpful to hear so much of what you just brought up. And I'm wondering if you could highlight the connections between renewable energy development and state deployment of the military and police in the name of extraction. And I know we can't generalize South America's approach to resource extraction, but I do think listeners would be interested in hearing about the correlation between the green energy boom and state violence to the extent that you're willing to speak about it. Sure, it's an excellent question, both because there's a lot to say historically and, and currently about it, but I also think that some of answering this will, will require actually a bit of speculation, which I think can be an interesting, you know, creative kind of activity to, to mental activity to engage in. So I'll come to that speculative piece at the end. But let me tell you what I think we do know um, empirically already. One is that extractive sectors around the world, not only in the global south or in Latin America or Chile, uh, including in you know the the U.S. and and Canada, for example, um, which have major extractive sectors, uh, particularly in 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 oil and and gas and coal, we see that around the world, extractive sectors often are marked by particular levels of violence, uh, repression, and conflict. Right, the state is often one key actor there. Uh, states often deploy repressive force, whether that's police or military or security or intelligence agents, right? There are different types of state repression, but they often deploy uh, direct repressive force to protect such projects against resistance or conflict, or, or even sometimes when there's no actual resistance, you will see armed guards protecting sites of extraction, right? Um, to kind of project the authority of the state. States often label these sectors as quote unquote strategic. Sometimes that's written into the very constitution of a given state. And what that means is that the state, you know, thinks these sectors are extra important, right? To, to sort of protect. And that sort of carries also that indication of the potential for state violence. We've seen this, this type of violence in the fight over Standing Rock, Keystone. Um, uh, we have just seen this time and again, right? It's not something that just happens in other places. Uh, in Latin America, this 
takes additional forms. Uh, you often also see um, in certain contexts paramilitary violence. So it's not official state violence, but often there are you know, nebulous connections to the state in some way. You might see corporations that actually hire their own private security guards. So when I did research in Ecuador, which might come up later in this conversation for an, for an earlier project, it, I, I researched a, a, a copper mining company that, that used, that, that hired um, uh, private guards, right? And they and inflicted, you know, quite intense violence on community members that were in protest of the mine. So this just gives you a sense. This is a correlation that many scholars have drawn out uh, around the world. And, you know, we can link this already to, to the renewable energy transition. So I already mentioned copper, and I'm just going to bring it up again. It's hard to overstate how important copper is to renewable energy, and that those two words, copper and renewable energy, might not be words that listeners have thought about side by side. But just to remind folks that in order to transition to a renewable energy system, we need to electrify economic processes that are not currently electrified. So we need, um, and we can just use the car example, right? So an electric vehicle, the word electric, right? Needs to be able to be plugged in to the grid um, and needs energy conducted um, through copper wiring within the car and, and, um, and in the, the broader energy system, right? And that's the case for any device or activity that we want to power with renewable energy, we need to be able to plug it into the grid, so to speak, unless we have our own little solar panel on that, whatever that thing is. But you need to be able to connect to the grid. That means a lot of copper wiring. And that means an enormous amount of copper uh, will be extracted in order to allow us to use renewable energy technologies. We've seen around Latin America, particularly in the Andean region, so in Chile, in Peru, in uh, Ecuador, just to name a few places, copper mining cause a lot of conflict, a lot of social protest, and also be the site of a lot of state and corporate forms of repression, right? So that's just one angle to take on it, just through the lens of copper. I want to kind of go to that speculative piece that I was saying earlier. As I noted, in the beginning of this conversation, we're in a nascent stage of the energy transition. It is globally uneven. Some places have transitioned more than others. We still have a lot of work to do to really move away from an energy system that's based in fossil fuels. So I think, you know, at early stages, you can start to detect trends that might take hold and take root and be more predominant once um, a fuller transition occurs. And you know, what I'm starting to get concerned about in my research is the way that states, and not only in the global South, I'm talking about in what I'm about to say about the US and the European Union actually specifically, are starting to designate the minerals needed for renewable energy technologies as quote unquote critical or strategic or crucial, they use different words, and that should give listeners pause. When a state actor says this natural resource is strategic or quote unquote critical, it means that oftentimes states will use additional forms of repression in order to protect its extraction. And so the EU has done this and added lithium to its list of critical minerals. The US first under Trump, but actually more recently again under Biden, has designated lithium as well as several other minerals as critical. Um, and sometimes it's directly said that it's not just about the green technology, but that military technologies in general rely on these minerals as well. So you get this ominous sense that states and perhaps corporations as well might respond with additional forms of repression around uh, protest against, you know, let's say, or conflict around the, these types of sectors. And it's speculative. We don't know this yet, but I just want to sort of put that there because I think there's a long history of state repression and, and extraction going hand in hand. And I hope we don't repeat that history, but I think it helps to be aware of that at the outset of a process um, uh, rather than, you know, unfortunately when it's too late. It's a windy afternoon. Can't afford to buy
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And yeah, I think it should give all of us pause to realize that there are multiple systems being set up to extract these resources and yeah it is frightening to hear those kinds of words because in a sense they're like they're like warlike terminology and that is something to really consider yeah in latin america's green new deal you co-authored with daniel aldana cohen you write quote while the green new deal idea massively expanded the scope of climate action from carbon pricing to rewriting the united states entire social and ecological contract It said little about the rest of the world. Its chief historical referent, the New Deal, invokes U.S. history alone. And yet the project's edges have been internationalist. Leave aside the phrasing and the substance of the project has everything to do with the contemporary political economic struggles all over the world, including in Latin America. End quote. Yeah, and I I think about my previous questions and how they've sort of alluded to what a Green New Deal might mean for resource-rich countries in South America, but I'd like to ask you to elaborate a bit further on the global dimensions of a Green New Deal, or perhaps talk about what a globally accountable Green New Deal would look like instead. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's it's tricky because there's many ways to unpack it, both on a level of sort of, um, I guess, you know, three kind of levels that occur to me immediately. One would be kind of what are the, if we just implemented a Green New Deal right now in the US without much attention to those global ramifications, how would it affect the rest of the world, right? So that's one kind of question to ask. Another um, two sets of of other related questions are, what kind of policies could we implement as part of a Green New Deal kind of transformative moment that would have more beneficial effects for the rest of the world, right, rather than potentially harmful ones? And then a third and, and perhaps even thornier question is, how can we, let's say U.S. activists, kind of reconstruct what I see as very lost and weakened Uh, relationships of solidarity with groups and communities and movements around the world. Relationships that I think at other moments in, in, in political history were stronger than they are now. I think we've lost a lot of the the habit and ethos and kind of orientation of solidarity and internationalism and and sort of a global perspective in in movements in the US. Um, So let me, you know, go back to the beginning of where I framed that. What I worry about, um, despite, I should say, being on record as an extreme advocate of the Green New Deal, right? I think it's a wonderful paradigm shift in climate policy. It connects the crisis of inequality to the crisis of global warming. It focuses on real material improvements in ordinary people's lives. And it sees, I think, a really vigorous role for the public sector and also for creative forms of public ownership and community ownership and cooperatives and, you know, just a different way to organize our economy. And so I'm like, you know, just want to frame this by saying I'm a big advocate of the Green New Deal, but I also think there are different versions of the Green New Deal and that, you know, we should be intentional, especially about this international piece from the, from the get-go. I worry that a Green New Deal that doesn't attend to global supply chains and to the extraction required um, by green technologies could you know just neglect the forms of social and environmental injustice that those technologies currently require to produce to be produced? Um, I, I emphasize currently because I don't think it's inevitable that that these technologies, whether it's solar panels or electric buses, right? These technologies could be produced quite differently than they are, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. But if we don't attend to global supply chains, then we just use the normal methods of production and consumption and extraction, the ones that we've already talked about, right? And we might reinforce them. Uh, and we might reinforce them dramatically because when we look at major changes um, 
major and aggressive and fast changes in our whole, you know, kind of energy system, there might be a huge rush to secure these minerals around the world and to ramp up production for these technologies in ways that are just not attentive to the issues of labor exploitation or contamination or local waterways or indigenous rights, just to name a few, you know, I think important um, issues to attend to. So I worry about that, um, but I don't think it's inevitable. And now I'm going to go to the second piece that I said, like what kind of policies and frameworks might a Green New Deal employ in order to avoid exacerbating resource conflict um, and extraction around the world, but and instead actually reduce extraction, reduce the resource requirements, reduce how much uh, is pulled out of the earth in the name of more production of, of these technologies. And I would just put a few points. One is I think that the worst way to do the energy transition uh, in, uh, especially when we're talking about transportation, right, which is a place where we're seeing a, a lot of, of change already, right? The people buying electric vehicles, these auto companies producing new electric vehicles, et cetera. That's an area where we're seeing, you know, in the current moment, the energy transition unfolding. What worries me is this paradigm that's become very popular with politicians and corporations, which is that the way to combat climate change is for everyone to have an electric vehicle in their garage. Now, first of all, that's just not economically accessible. And you actually asked at the very top of this show, like, you know, is this, is this really accessible? Is this even an accessible kind of solution? And I would say, no, not for poor and working class people that can't afford you know, without a lot of government help, and maybe there will be government help, but anyway, can't afford a new car. And actually, the poorer you are, the more likely you are to drive a car that is less energy efficient, that produces more emissions, or maybe to not be able to afford a car at all, right? And so there's some equity issues, first and foremost, with a car-centric approach to our energy transition. And then I think, second of all, everyone owning their own car is very resource-intensive, I think that just might make sense. I'm just going to let that kind of land there because I think it's clear that if everyone has their own thing, a lot more things need to be produced. And so what if instead we had an economy that was focused on public services, on collective consumption, on forms of sharing um, with one another and in forms of, of, of caring for you know, what we have and not always getting a new thing? What would that look like? And so, you know, what I advocate for along with others is an energy, um, excuse me, is a transit system that focuses on public transit and mass transit. I know there are challenges in rural areas. So I also think there's a lot of interesting creative solutions for rural areas to have public transit systems. So on mass and public transit, a single bus with its lithium battery can maybe um, uh, ferry around thousands of people a day versus a car that sits in the garage most of the day. So it's a much better use of those resources. But also, you know, maybe in some spaces of, of, of especially in urban areas, eliminates a car, private cars, passenger cars altogether, right? And there are fascinating movements in Europe and elsewhere in the world to have car-free cities. Of course, we always need to take into account that um, uh, there are mobility, you know, there are differences in, in folks' mobility, right? So not everyone is going to walk and cycle, but there can definitely be provisions made for fully equitable and accessible transit systems that are a mix of public transit um, and walking and cycling and electrify all transit, don't rely on individual ownership of, of electric vehicles. So that's the second piece, policies, thinking about policies that require less resources and actually change the way we consume rather than just like a kind of green capitalist situation where we consume the same exact way, but with renewable energy. And then the final piece, and I'll be a bit shorter here, um, but, but I think it's worth mentioning, and it resonates a lot with that excerpt you read out loud from Daniel and, and my essay, um, which is beyond the level of policy, it's also, I think, important and incumbent upon movements in the United States, climate movements, social justice movements, racial justice movements, to see themselves in global perspective, to see themselves as part of struggles that transcend borders, um, as impacted by processes of oppression and exploitation that also, of course, transcend borders, and sort of re-stitch together relationships with movements elsewhere in the world that despite our very global 
media systems and Twitter and X, Y, and Z, I think a lot of those relationships, like despite the fact that we can at any moment with our smartphones figure out what's happening elsewhere in the world, I think the relationships between movements have really suffered. And it's, it's a longer question as to why that's the case, but it has been the case. Um, and I think that it would be positive for our projects like the Green New Deal to kind of re-solidify and shore up those relationships both so that we're attentive to what some of the negative impacts are elsewhere in the world and we can stand in solidarity with let's say indigenous communities in Chile if they resist lithium mining, both for those types of campaigns and issues, but also to learn from elsewhere in the world, right? It's not just about being a good ally, it's also about learning uh, what has worked well, you know, in terms of more socially just energy transitions in the places that have embarked on them. Um, so I think there's a tremendous amount to be gained with a more from a more international um, and solidarity based perspective. Hmm. Well, one of the largest questions that I've read that you tackle is whether or not we can improve well being without an extractive model of development. And I think we'd both agree that we absolutely can live well without extraction. But this question becomes much more complex when we ask if we can have leftist systems of care under capitalism without extraction of some sort. Because so often countries have nationalized their resources so they can improve the social conditions of their own country to compete with what the you know so-called West has defined as a decent quality of life. So I'm wondering if you could speak to the dilemma and whether or not it's possible to have national governments without extractive development. And if so, what does it look like to center social care and economic security in the immediate future without extraction? Yeah, this is probably one of the thornier questions that we'll talk about today, which is a high bar because you've already raised a number of obviously complex questions um, and nuanced questions. But this one gets at the heart of so many different issues. And I think your framing, which is one that I've also used of dilemmas, is very apt, right? Um, a dilemma is where you confront a situation uh, where the, the sort of pros and cons of different ways forward are very fraught, and it's not clear what the best approach is, right? Or that's one way to think about a dilemma. And that, that's the way that I think of one. You know, dilemmas kind of make us paralyzed because it's not clear how to move forward. And I, and I feel like this is a set of issues that can, can result in that kind of um, orientation. Um, I guess that what I would say just to kind of frame a little bit, and then I'll get into the more uh, specific substantive questions that you ask about progressive governments, let's say in the global South and how they can provide for, for their people um, without uh, reinforcing an extractive model of development. And I would say that over many years of thinking about this, and my thinking continues to evolve, so maybe in a year from now, I'll have a different way of thinking about it, but this is kind of how I've, how I've um, come around to it. I think that it's important to disentangle extraction from extractivism is one way to think about it. And maybe we actually just need a different word than extraction altogether. But I wanna put a little space between the words extraction and extractivism. I don't think that there is a way to build even um, the best society, the most utopian society that we could think of that is socially just, egalitarian, low carbon, right? Doesn't have racism or patriarchy or exploitation, right? I'm just imagining a society. That society would still need in some way to appropriate um, resources, though maybe they'd be called something else, because um, uh, that already kind of commodifies nature a bit, but anyway, would have to interact with nature in some way, right? The solar panels that that society uses in its, you know, perfectly democratically owned energy system, those solar panels would need to be made from minerals that are extracted from the earth. They would need to be manufactured with machines and factories. And so I think that it sometimes is an easy way out that I myself have also taken this easy way out, this route to say there's, you know, we want a society with no extraction, but I don't think that that is possible, though maybe we just need a different word from extraction because maybe in our ideal society, 
the, the way in which we um, interact with nature would be so fundamentally different that we wouldn't call it extraction anymore. But I think that we will use nature's bounty in order to produce what we, the, you know, to, to sort of produce what we need to survive and to, and to do more than survive, to, to flourish, right? So, you know, I think even in our, my ideal, let's say, eco-socialist uh, utopia, lithium would be needed, right? I would want there to be electric buses. Um, and right now we don't have another way to power them. And even if we create another way, it would still come from the earth because everything comes from the earth, like a, at some point. But the question is like, how much extraction, under what terms, who has to consent to it? And those are the real political questions that I think we should address head on and that don't have easy answers. But I think that, you know, a, a system, a social system that, that uses things from nature is different than, or doesn't have to be this sort of pathological system of extractivism where everything, uh, nature and humans are subordinated to economic growth, to constant consumerism, to production without end aside from profit. Um, right. So, you know, I, that's why I kind of put a little distance between extraction and extractivism. And then to get to your, like the kind of crux of your question, are there ways to improve well-being without an extractive model of development? And I think you say, you ask this question, particularly in context that are resource rich, that have historically uh, extracted and, and exported those resources, a relationship that can often be traced hundreds of years to a colonial period, but, but really the, the, the basic relations have not fundamentally changed. So a place like Ecuador, uh, uh, where I mentioned earlier, I've done a lot of, of field work and, and wrote a book about, um, is a place that uh, a lot of its state's budget comes from oil-related revenues and now increasingly mining-related revenues as well. And uh, uh, earlier in, in, in sort of Ecuador's recent history, when a left government first came to power in, um, in 2007, the government of Rafael Correa, his name, of the president, um, uh, committed to using those resources, the revenues that, that the state gained from extracting those resources in order to fund uh, social services and public infrastructure projects, which by the way, as your question very much I think is attuned to, were exactly the types of demands that social movements, popular movements, labor unions, indigenous movements included, had made for a long time. They had said, we live amongst this natural wealth and it is expropriated by foreign capitalists and we never see the benefits of it. And so Correa said, for the first time in Ecuador's history, you know, from all the way from when Ecuador was a colony to independence, to military dictatorships, to other democratically um, elected governments, my government is going to address social needs and it's gonna do so with the revenues generated by extraction. And that put, the Korea government in this fundamental dilemma, to use that word again, which is that that made short and even, you know, to some extent, medium term economic and social sense. And it made a lot of political sense. He was a very popular president uh, and he did the things he said he was going to do. He decreased po poverty dramatically, almost cut it in half. Um, he ex expanded dramatically people's access to health, education, transit, and housing. But he did so um, on a model, using a model that was environmentally devastating. That wasn't new. That had been the case previously in Ecuador's history, but he, you know, you know, reaffirmed that model that violated indigenous rights. And that also was economically precarious um, because it depended a lot on the global prices for those commodities and how high they were, right? And so he was caught in those dilemmas and those eventually really undermined uh, the transformative project that he sought to pursue in addition to his government's own repression, and that's worth you know, mentioning, of movements that, that contested extractivism, that, that resisted it. Um, but I think that doesn't answer the question. Could he have done otherwise? Was there another route to social and economic well-being uh, in Ecuador, for example, other than relying on oil and mining revenues? And you know, I think that's a very hard question to answer. And what I've, what I've kind of come around to recently, even since writing the book in a way, is that that question can't be answered at the scale of Ecuador. That question can't be answered in one country on the peripheries of the global economy that has historically extracted um, these resources and it is a just pillar of the national economy. That is not a transition that Ecuador can just make 
on its own, so to speak, because if it was just Ecuador and they decided, okay, we're gonna leave the oil on the ground and that's it, it would actually be quite difficult to address people's needs, which is not to say that Ecuador shouldn't leave the oil on the ground, they should. But I think it immediately raises responsibility, complicity, uh, at other levels of, of global governance, right? So whether we look at the region of Latin America, the hemisphere, you know, all the Americas, the US included, or the globe, I think that it's incumbent on more powerful, affluent and well-resourced uh, places and institutions and economic groups um, and, and companies in the world who have historically benefited and profited from the extraction and the economic, or excuse me, the environmental devastation that it causes, I think it's incumbent on them to alleviate uh, the kind of economic straits that Ecuador, for example, finds itself in. To, for example, reduce or cancel the debt that Ecuador owes to all these financial institutions, debt that was contracted under very illegitimate circumstances, I think, and is part of what forces a country like Ecuador to extract resources because you have to you know, pay this debt to the IMF, to private creditors, to whoever it is, right? And, and so I'm just giving listeners a sense that I think these questions have to be answered at broader scales in some part, that it's hard for one low-income country that whose primary economic sectors are extractive to just um, you know, sort of get off the extractive grid and at the same time care for, feed, clothe, and house, and hopefully much more than that the people that live there. And it, I think, involves other forms of global, uh, regional and global redistribution, uh, debt cancellation, and maybe new regional economies that in concert with one another, countries in concert with one another, shift away from an extractive model of development towards one that centers social and natural care. I want to go a bit deeper into this and as a follow-up ask what does a post-extractive just transition look like in the so-called global south versus the global north yeah it's it's such a good question that i think a lot of interesting thinkers and activists in the americas and i'm sure many other places in the world are grappling with right now you know so i think that there's a lot that can be done to uh to use forms of public investment uh, in, in global South countries to shift away from extractive sectors and instead kind of um, uh, transition towards renewable energy. In fact, renewable energy is a very undertapped resource in Latin America. Um, uh, there's a lot of potential for renewable energy. It's such a climactically, ecologically um, diverse region. And so you could get the idea that there are places that are extremely well situated for solar energy, places very well situated for wind energy, and then actually due to the volcanic activity in, in the Andean region and, and probably elsewhere, that's just the region I'm, I'm familiar with, there's also a lot of geothermal potential as well. So there's a lot of untapped renewable energy potential that, you know, again, in, in my ideal world could also be um, coordinated involving forms of community ownership, making sure that communities get real economic benefits um, from these projects, that they can actually manage these projects, right, and make sure that they 
fit in well with other livelihoods, with local ecosystems, um, and what the community's desires are for how they are designed, even on an aesthetic level, right? There's a lot of evidence around from research around the world that when communities take part in the renewable energy transition, when they have a real role, a real stake, real power, they like the transition much more. They benefit from it, they, are, they feel positively about it, and they embrace it, right? And that's very different than a top-down imposition of renewable energy, you know, with a green capital capitalist corporation that swoops in and says, we're going to dispossess you of your land, which has happened in many places in Latin America. And there's a lot of unfortunate examples of this in Mexico, for example, of indigenous people actually being dispossessed by mega wind developments. But if those same communities, you know, owned the, the wind developments themselves, right, designed them themselves, you get the idea, right? So I think that there's a really interesting path forward for, um, for Latin America to pivot to renewable energy and do so in a way that's, that's different than, than what we've seen in a lot of the world so far. Um, and I think that, you know, given also the natural resources such as lithium that exist in the region, if there was much more regional coordination and supply chains that were less about serving global markets and foreign consumers and more about serving the sort of region, uh, and, and its people, right, and needs, then, you know, you might be able to get some green technology development and manufacturing that just was fundamentally different in its character, right, because it wasn't to be exported far away, but rather to build kind of local or regional forms of manufacturing and create dignified jobs for people in the region, right? So there's all sorts of different ways, I think, that you could transition um, to a different type of economy that's, that's, I don't know if I could say totally non-extractive, but, but post-extractivist, right? No longer centered on extractivism as its, as its guiding principle. And just one other thing I, I would say, since the word has come up a couple of times, is that there are a lot of interesting ideas from a feminist perspective and an indigenous perspective in the Americas about a care-centered economy. Like what would it look like instead of the economy to sort of run on extraction for it to be oriented around healthcare, education, elder care, um, the creation of vibrant communities, um, the arts, you know, and these, these are the same things I would endeavor for in the United States. They're not specific to Latin America, except that Latin America, um, and in particular, you know, in some countries in particular, has a very vibrant feminist movement. Um, I'm thinking of Chile and Argentina stand out a lot, um, as well as Mexico, just really militant, vibrant, creative feminist movements that have thought a lot about care as a concept um, to sort of reclaim and, and, and think about in, as, as actually a foundation for the whole economy. So these are like the touchstones for me, um, but I would encourage listeners to also read other folks. I'm sure there are many ideas I didn't I didn't mention, you know, we could get into regenerative agriculture, for example, um, as opposed to the monocrop agriculture that's destroying the Amazon and, and the cattle ranching that's destroying the Amazon, right? So there's many places to go with the idea of a post-extractive economy. But I do want to reiterate that some of these, well, I should say many of these economic activities that I've mentioned require some initial public investment and would, um, and also not all of them generate the kind of revenues that oil does. And so I think this still brings us back to the question of responsibility at other scales. Right now, Latin America, by all accounts, is the region of the world most economically devastated by COVID. We could get into why that is, you know, in a follow-up if you're interested, but, you know, readers can easily read news stories about this. It has just ravaged the region economically, um, in large part because of how many workers are quote unquote informal workers and just lack a basic social safety net and therefore have had to choose between starvation if they don't work or the virus if they do, right? And it's been a very, uh, it's just been a very tragic situation in Latin America. So you have these, you know, this region of economic devastation and governments that have spent every penny that they have on, on the basics of public health provision and are also in debt by huge quantities to um, global creditors and, and international financial institutions. And so in that context, is it, you know, can a government, a single government in the global South or in Latin America invest in the, this new economic model that's renewable, that's care-centric, et cetera? I think that, again, it brings up the issue of, of the need for redistribution and um, help and solidarity from, from other governments and, and economic entities around the world. Um, but I do think 
there's great ideas for what that model would look like. The question is, is are there the economic resources within the region to transition to it right now? I want to go back to something that you were touching on earlier around collective consumption. And, you know, I've heard you talk about in other articles and uh, or interviews about the relationship between solidarity and consumption and how solidarity can in fact look like consuming less, but not at the individual level. Rather, we can actually consume less and demonstrate solidarity by strengthening our ability to collectively use goods and services. So I'd love if you could talk a bit more about the importance of collective consumption and how it guarantees more equity and justice throughout the entire supply chain. Thank you for that question. And I've learned, I just want to say, though his name has already come up, I've learned a lot from my uh, collaborator, Daniel Aldana Cohen, about the kind of, you know, why collective consumption and um, public and shared forms of abundance, we might even use the word luxury, um, uh, are so important both for improving people's material well-being and simultaneously for addressing the climate crisis um, and, the, and the broader crisis also of, of ecological devastation. And I think, you know, we so often think of consumption as individual, in individual terms, like I choose to consume this. And so for, for many environmentalists, that can take the form of like, I'm going to individually consume differently. And then immediately we're sort of like, but okay, I'm not going to use a plastic bag, but everyone else is using a plastic bag. There are obvious limitations to an individual understanding of consumption. And we get sort of like in these rabbit holes of like, you know, kind of never ending, what, what should I be doing differently kind of thing. But I I want to encourage us to zoom out as your you know, excellent question does, which is to say, even when our consumption appears to us as an individual choice, even when it seems we're just walking to the supermarket using our own money and buying the thing that we want to buy, um, it's never individual, um, meaning that consumption is highly socially patterned, right? It's highly um, constrained or and enabled by the social systems that we live in. You know, if I live in a suburban enclave uh, in, the, uh, in the United States, uh, I have no choice but to drive. There's just literally no choice. If I don't drive, it's probably because I'm too poor to afford a car or to afford gas or to afford my car insurance, right? Anyone can, that can afford to drives. I actually live in what, you know, a city in Providence, Rhode Island, and it's, um, uh, and it's, you know, a decently dense city, small city, and our public transit is so bad that um, even though um, I don't actually live very far from where I work, there's really no way for me to get there other than to drive there. In fact, I got a driver's license at kind of an old age of like 33 uh, in order just to get myself to work. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because despite the fact that it might seem like an individual choice that I drove to work, it really wasn't a choice. It was a social choice to not provide me with any other option, right? So we should always think about consumption in social terms. And when we zoom out and think that way, it sort of opens up all these other possibilities of how we might as a society consume differently. So rather than the system that we have, which um, is individualized and in it's like ultimate effects, but really you know, is designed by, by policy choices, is highly unequal. Uh, some people you know, consume radically more or less than other people, right? It's a very unequal system of consumption. Um, and it is, has all these other characteristics, of course, of race and gender as well, in terms of like how much people consume, what people's options are. There's a lot of studies that show that, you know, low-income communities of color just have far fewer options in terms of what supermarkets or might not have supermarkets at all, the so-called sort of food desert phenomena, right? So again, all, all of these are social choices, but at an individual level, we don't have a lot of control over them. And you know, what would it look like to transition from that type of system of consumption to a system in which consumption more often took place with other people, like in literal community with others and literal kind of communion with other people? What if instead of driving in our individual steel traps, cars, death traps, um, we were you know, in a train or a tram or a bus or a, or a trolley uh, with other people, right? So that's a form of collective consumption because it's many people consuming the same service at once. Um, you know, what if instead of streaming Netflix alone in our apartments, we, uh, and I know this is a hard time to say this with COVID, but let's just 
relax that assumption for a moment and presume that at some point we can re-enter society, right? So, okay, so instead of Netflix in our homes, what if we went to the theater with other people? What if we actually saw plays, right? Which are much lower carbon, by the way, than uh, anything that requires so much, you know, streaming um, content and huge internet servers and that kind of thing. So all I'm saying is that there are always different ways that we can pattern consumption socially. And the individualist system that we have in the U.S. is also a very unequal one, and it's a very resource-intensive one, as we already discussed with the example of electric vehicle, individual electric vehicles versus electric buses. And so I think there's a lot of benefits to thinking collectively about consumption. Uh, it, it's more equitable because everyone's consuming the same service, right? It's not like, you know, you can buy your way into like very different consumer categories. Everyone's using the same mass transit system, let's say. So it's more equitable. Um, it is less resource intensive uh, because it's just more economically efficient. You have these economies of scale um, with the resources that are extracted and more people are making use of them. It also, I think there are other benefits of it that that are important to attend to, which are on a kind of more social, psychological, emotional relationship kind of level, which is that it creates a different type of society when we do things together more. When we see one another as part of a shared collectivity or a shared community, when you know, you're riding the subway or bus or whatever it is, you have the opportunity to maybe enter into a conversation with someone that you don't know, right? Or you say hi to the bus driver that you see every day on your route. You can um, you know, see kind of the different communities that, that interact with and use this infrastructure. Whereas a car is totally isolating and alienating, right? You're moving alone through a landscape. And I think it can't be sort of overstated how much the way that we consume actually affects our, our sense of politics and our sense of community. And I think how pernicious it's been to have this model of consumption in the US that's highly individualized, though again, it's, it's socially designed, but it's very individualized in terms of like the unit of the consumer is the individual um, versus a society that sometimes in places we've had in the US and certainly in other places in the world, there are examples of where we have these more collective forms of consumption, more public forms of consumption, shared experiences with one another and opportunities to create relationships that get us outside of our immediate you know, selves, our domestic context that allow us to encounter people from different backgrounds. And I think that could have a lot of positive political and social and psychological, I would say, effects um, to, to as much as we can transition to that mode of consumption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really love that vision. And I appreciate you putting that out there so we can collectively dream on it a bit more. And yeah, Thea, thank you so much for your time. This has been such an incredible interview. I've learned so much from you and I appreciate your clarity and just how studied you are and how much time you've clearly taken to understand these complex systems. And yeah, as we come to a close, I'd like to read listeners a passage from your article, What Green Cost? Quote, I might not know the exact shape of the world I want. The present weighs heavily and makes imagination difficult. But I know it starts with relating to this planet's bounty as mysterious, vital, and nourishing, envisioning abundance as shared flourishing, and broadening our solidarities to encompass people we may never meet and places we may never visit, but whose futures are bound up with our own. End quote. And as we dream into the future, can I ask you how you define the type of abundance that has existed long before extraction? Oh, that's such a great, I think that's your hardest question so far, <laughs> because it involves this sort of leap of imagination, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and I, I think that there is, I want to just emphasize that, like it, there is a way in which the world that I would like to create is unknown to me in a way, it's unknowable to me. And, and it probably won't be created, you know, full in any full sense in my own lifetime. I, I always think that one of the most valiant things or aspects of past struggles for more equality, for you know, feminist struggles, civil rights struggles, labor struggles, like the struggles that predated us, is that their participants wouldn't always be around to see the 
hopefully better world that their endeavors help to create, right? I think that's such a kind of valiant expression of, of in a way, solidarity across generations, right? Of sort of intergenerational justice, of wanting something that maybe honors the past, right? Ancestors and, and you know, ecosystems before, uh, before capitalism despoiled them, but also has this sort of future orientation of we're in a collective project to create a world that is more abundant, not because of more individual consumption, but because of more meaningful lives that feel more fulfilled, that feel more secure and safe, and that interact with nature in a non-extractive and fundamentally different way. That project is a collective project, it's a global project, it's one that is spatially dispersed, and it's one that unfolds in this sort of uneven way over time. And that, you know, we that fight for that right now won't be around to see how that project ends up, you know, a hundred years from now, let's say. Um, but I think that it's incumbent on us, especially in this moment of just dramatic and severe climate crisis to get as quickly involved in that project as we can, right? Even if we won't be around to see all of its fruits and its bounties. I do think that um, we have a responsibility uh, to, to do everything that we can to make sure that we're laying the foundation for that other world that we um, hope others will pick up the process of, of realizing. Mm -hmm. oh, that was such a beautiful closure to this conversation. Thank you, Thea, so much. I really enjoyed this and was also stretched and um, learned a lot. And I think this information, especially now, is so important and pivotal and really necessary for us to understand. So thank you for all of your time today and all of the time and work you've put into studying this over the years. Thank you so much for your really nuanced questions. Um, and that, that really made me think. And that, that last one was, um, I'm going to sit with it for a minute. But thank you mm -hmm. so much um, mm -hmm. for the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by 40 Million Feet, Mitski, and Alexa Wildish. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassfell, and Julia Jackson.